Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. In this edition, now that Australia has avoided the worst of the coronavirus epidemic, we look at why sections of our media are falling into an all too familiar pattern. We ask, is COVID-19 our new culture war? There was an announcement this week that the government is moving ahead with making Facebook and Google pay for carrying the news. What does that mean? And is it really good news for our media companies? And, oh, no, Big Brother wants you to download an app on your phone and track your movements. Is this a necessary part of fighting this virus or another sign of overreach into our private lives? Well, to help us through these issues, we are joined remotely, of course, by two senior journalists. Damien Cave is the Bureau Chief Australia for the New York Times. He's had postings in Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean and in India for the Times. He's also been a staff writer and editor at Rolling Stone and Salon.com. And if that wasn't enough, he was also in a group of finalists for the 2008 Pulitzer Prize. Damien Cave, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Thank you. Happy to be here. Chris Ullman is the political editor for Nine. He also writes as a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald. He's been the political editor on the 7.30 report on ABC television and co-host of 7.30. He has also co-written three novels which have been turned into a series on Netflix. Chris Ullman is also a regular trending term on Twitter. Chris Ullman, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks, Monica. Chris Ullman is the political editor for Nine. He also writes as a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald. He's been the political editor on the 7.30 report on ABC television and co-host of 7.30. He has also co-written three novels which have been turned into a series on Netflix. Chris Ullman is also a regular trending term on Twitter. Chris Ullman, welcome to Fourth Estate. Now, last time I was talking to you about coronavirus, we were about seven weeks into the world being aware of the virus and only 71,000 people worldwide were infected and over 1,700 had died. The cases in Australia were less than 20 then. Today, just a few weeks later, the picture is starkly different. Over two and a half million people globally are infected and 170,000 are dead. Australia has been relatively fortunate when you look at the numbers. We currently have 6,650 cases and 74 dead at the time of broadcast. And the really good news is that infection rates in Australia are now down to zero or single digits in most states. So well done us. But not everyone in the media is very happy. Almost as soon as most of us were locked away at home hoping that we'd have enough toilet paper to get through all of this, the rumbling started to come from sections of the media not used to being ignored. Was a lockdown necessary? And what about the economy? The subtext to most of this was, bluntly, surely the health of our businesses is more important than a few people's lives. So before we put our parents and grandparents on the stoop for collection, let's examine this new culture war and see what is actually happening here. Now, Damien, I'll start with you. It it strikes me that Australia's success in dealing with the threat of coronavirus comes down to a few key factors. Geography, because we're an island at the bottom of the world, let's face it. 
uh, we're well ordered and we're an affluent society. We still have basic respect for our institutions and probably most importantly, our leaders actually listen to the experts. Is that how you see it as well? Is that the difference between us and the United States? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I've been talking to a bunch of experts about this first story I'm actually writing today. And what they all sort of conclude is that Australia and New Zealand as well have succeeded through a mix of luck and really strong management. Um, And that form of management is really leaders, in this case, from both the left and the right, who chose what I call a throwback democracy, letting experts lead, letting the technocrats, you know, take precedence, um, finding a way to to not sort of inject um, too much partisanship into the process. But it's also, I think, a product of support for public institutions that preceded the virus. I think in the United States, there's a lot of problems that have developed because, you know, whether it's public health, whether it's divisions in terms of the politics, you know, American democracy has been kind of stripped to the bones for years now. And I think that in Australia and New Zealand, they're benefiting from the fact that there were institutions here like, you know, public health laboratories. Public laboratories started building tests in January in Australia, mm-hmm. you know, long before it was even something on the radar of most people. So you had a whole bunch of experts who were really on top of this and who were then empowered by the leadership to do what they do well, which is, you know, guide people through a crisis. Mm. Chris, how do you see what's been the uh, secret to our success? Well, first and foremost, we're an island and we did what we always do when we're under threat. We closed the borders. We did that in 1919, which is when we faced the worst of the Spanish flu. So that gave us a natural advantage, even though there were voices, I've got to say, in the World Health Organization, which said shutting borders were was not a worthwhile exercise. Well, it clearly was here. And most of the cases that we had here came from overseas. Well, that gave us an opportunity to buy some time. But then we do actually, it turns out, after a decade of trivia in federal politics, have fairly strong institutions still. I think the best early uh, adventure in a new kind of federalism was the National Cabinet, that uh, all the states and territories came together with the federal government Mm -hmm. and started to make decisions together. And then we fell back on what are our very strong institutions and strongest amongst them are the fact that we have a good public health system and we have a good social security system and we were able to leverage all of that. That, and we were able to use the payment systems that already existed to try and deliver money quickly to those people who are going to suffer most. So I think it was really a, a combination of natural advantages. Now, you can say along the way we have had some stumbles, absolutely, the Ruby Princess chief amongst those. But every single government in the world's had its own problems. And I think if that's the biggest one that Australia faces, then that's a fairly small hurdle. Actually, Chris, can I ask you, why, because you mentioned it, do you think that the National Cabinet should survive? Should it? It's certainly some of the premiers think it should survive. Uh, I think that the federal government is toying with the idea about whether it survives. Certainly, it will it will survive the worst of the pandemic because we will take you know years to drag ourselves out of the economic hole that we just deliberately dug to try and avoid the disease. So I think there'll be a push for that for some period of time to come. But I think that over time, one of the things that will emerge is what we've always seen with the old COAG Council of Australian Governments process, that, you know, politics can't stay out of it forever. Mm. So, Damien, we, we, we do live in a vastly different world now to the one that uh, the world faced in, in, in 1918 with the Spanish flu. I mean, globalisation is the order of the day. Uh, the response of isolation seems almost impossible now, doesn't it, long term? You know, it's a good question. I mean, it seems in the medium term that this is just the world we're going to live in, uh, where there is far less travel, 
than there was before, where the prospect of going anywhere might mean 14 days in quarantine on both sides of the world. Um, you know, goods and products will continue to go back and forth, though there are problems with supply chains in that regard, too. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I do think that this is just the way it's going to be. I mean, what I think is so interesting when you compare it to 1918 is that the lockdowns and the severity of the response that we've been seeing really, in a lot of ways, outpaces what we saw in 1918. If you look at New York City, you know, the lockdown they have now is far more than it was in 1918. In 1918, schools weren't closed. Work hours were staggered so that people wouldn't concentrate on subways. But it wasn't as severe as it is now. And to some degree, that's because this is a very different pandemic and a higher threat. And in some ways, maybe because of globalization, it's just a lot harder to control people in one location compared to what it was before. Um, but, you know, globalization continues through technology. Globalization continues on a whole bunch of other fronts. But in terms of travel and movement of people, it does seem like for quite a while now, we're just going to be stuck in place. And now on both sides, and in, in, both in Australia and in the United States, it looks like coronavirus is kind of being turned into a, a, another culture war, another aspect of the culture war. We're some arguing for an economic focus and others saying, no, there has to be a health focus. And it has divided an already divided journalistic community in both countries. Chris, you've written about this. How are you seeing the fundamental issue of what's to be done and how to well, do it? Yeah, well, we've never faced a, a, a public policy question which has been this diabolical, and we do actually have to look at both sides of the equation. And the Prime Minister has been saying that from the start, which is there is a health issue that we have to deal with. But unfortunately, dealing with the health issue means impo imposing a radical cure, which is to shut down so much of your society that you impose a recession. In fact, we've gone beyond that. We're now, now looking at figures that, that mirror what we saw in the Great Depression. In fact, though it's come way faster than it did during the Depression. And the thing I keep trying to say to people is that recessions and depressions kill people too. You know, all this stuff is measured in lives. And so we can't leave aside the fact that we have now engineered a recession and a depression. And I would argue, Monica, that if we cover this over the next couple of years, it's quite likely that the recession that comes after the health crisis will kill more people than the crisis itself. And they will be young, wage-earning people. So I think this is a diabolical public policy question. I don't want to put any person's life above any other person's life, but both sides of the equation must be considered. And on both sides, there's risk. You know, you make a decision for one side, you risk a life on the other. Mm. Uh, Damien, we, we, as a society, uh, as a capital society, and all capital societies do this, we put value a value on individual lives all the time, don't we? We do, of course. But I, I think Chris is absolutely right. I mean, I think in every scenario, there's risk and people need to figure out how to live with these risks and adapt to these risks. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that businesses are already doing a pretty good job of this. You know, when I go to the local grocery store, there's a line to limit how many people go inside. There are X's on the floors to keep us apart. And so private industry is already figuring out ways to live with the virus. Um, and so the question is just at what point does government sort of adopt that approach and force institutions and force all of us to find a way to do that? You see a little bit of that with schools in New South Wales. I think they're starting to sort of force that. Um, but I think that's a question for everyone is, okay, you can't eliminate risk. So how are you going to find a way to live with this risk and adapt to it? And what can we do to preserve as much of the economic livelihood, as much of the life that we need um, 
to kind of keep going. Uh, so I think that there is, I think this is a question that's going to continue and there are choices constantly made. I mean, the culture war in Australia, you know, maybe between surfers and runners. Um, but when governments choose to, you know, to lock something down, there's always someone who wins and someone who loses. And so you just have to figure out a way to work through this as a society. I think Australia's done a better job than most places, but these tensions are going to continue. And so, so I, I, do you think then that we should be giving people more leeway in determining for themselves how we live with this virus? In other words, getting government out of the picture a little bit. I think I, I think that we're getting to a place where that's a very valid, you know, thing to consider. I mean, I think Australia is one of several countries where I, I think there's been a lot of over policing. I think sitting on a bench and drinking coffee is not a health risk, and I think police should have more common sense. Um, even if the, you know, to sort of use discretion. Um, so I do think that there is, there are some issues with the state becoming the arbiter of every activity. You know, that is something that I think is problematic for a free society and democracy. And it sets a precedent that is a lot more like what you'd see in an authoritarian country. And I'm not sure it's what people ultimately want. So I think there's room for that, but I do think it's finding a way to work itself out. You know, I really think that part of this is, a process that happens in phases. And I think, you know, the, the nature and the, and the wonderful thing about democracy is that it's adaptable um, and it's adaptable through collective discussion and debate. And so I think that that's, that's happening and that will continue to happen, um, you know, in, in a lot of different places. But I think that we're starting to figure out over time, looking at country to country, what the best practices are, how to move through this together. And I think that that new normal will start to look pretty similar, you know, in six months pretty much in every developed country. Hmm. Chris, do you think that that kind of, uh, you know, movement would work in, in a country like Australia, allowing people essentially to, to make decisions for themselves, to give them more leeway, more agency in how we move forward? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but Damien and I have actually spoken at great length before about there are very big differences between the ways that Americans and Australians see the world, and we actually tend to, believe it or not, fall into line much more quickly than Australians would like to believe that we we do. We are we are given to doing what our governments tell us to do, believe it or not, when push comes to shove, whereas Americans are much more likely to head off in a whole lot of different directions. So different societies will deal with this differently. But I just put it this way. I think that when we start this stage unwinding of the way uh, our society is going to have to live with this new normal of the disease and live with it is what we're going to have to do. And I think the, the young should certainly be liberated first. In the schools, we know there is a very limited risk for them. There's more of a risk for teachers, but they should come out first. That helps us to restart our community. And then we should work our way through those groups which have more risk uh, attached to it. Now, we know that in Australia, the average age of the people are dying 78. So 78 plus, uh, obviously in a higher risk area, but if you're in the last years of your life and you have a choice between do or I don't I hug my grandchild, I think that choice should be yours. I don't think government should tell you whether or not you do that and you understand that a risk comes with that. Were you surprised at the reaction that you got when you wrote that? Not really because it was on Twitter and I don't actually think that Twitter's reflect anything in the real world. There are a group of very angry people on the left and on the right, I have to say. You know, typically, from I've got to say, I usually cop it from people on the left, they didn't read the article. What I said was there should be a stage withdrawal. I didn't say we should kill all the grandparents or expose all the grandparents to risk. I said the grandparents should be allowed to make their own choices. And I think that's what a free society should do. But, you know, that was in the last line that became the headline. There was an argument before it, but no one read it. Damien, are you surprised at how this has divided the journalistic community as well in Australia? 
I mean, the journalistic community in Australia has been divided long before this and will continue yeah. to be divided long after this. So I can't say that I'm surprised. I think people have sort of fallen into their camps. You know, initially there was a point where I was kind of disappointed to see the lack of nuance. And I think this is a reflection of the kind of conversation you see on Twitter, where it's basically a choice between lock down everything and, you know, be a moral hero or, you know, open up and let everyone die. And, and the reality is that smart policy exists somewhere between those two poles. And I don't think the media necessarily did a very good job of kind of laying out the full range of possibilities. Instead, it became this argument and debate and this shouting match, as there often is, between two polar opposites. And, and the reality is that most people, as I think Chris was saying too, live in that in-between. And, um, and I think that that's, that's where the media could have done, I think, a better job of really kind of explaining, you know, the possibilities of how this could work. Um, and again, I think we're getting there. I, I think the media, frankly, is lagging behind the experts and the politicians in this case, instead of driving the conversation, I think they're more reacting to the conversation. Um, but, you know, again, we're all learning through this process together. Uh, mm -hmm. And I do think that the sort of Twitter outrage and the moralism, whether it's from the left or the right, doesn't help. So, I mean, but that's what cultural wars kind of do, isn't it? They eat up the energy and time to have discussions as a society that we really should be having rather than the kind of very baseline ones of are we okay with killing off our old people? Uh, some of the big questions, what do you think the big questions are that we actually should be asking? I mean, and, and is one of them, why do we allow our supply chains to go through one country or two countries, in this case, China and India? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the conversations that will be had after this will be about sovereign capability. It's a term that we should get used to. It'll become like social distancing, uh, uh, the new black of next year, I think, about what level of things do we need to make in Australia? Uh, what level and what ways we need to diversify our supply chains? Now, I don't necessarily think that we need to make everything, but something should be clear to us. We need to have pharmaceuticals made in Australia because at this stage, 90% of them are imported. Now, mostly from the United States and from places like Germany, but all of the precursor chemicals are made in China. We can't allow that to continue to be the, the case. We don't have enough fuel on board in Australia to keep this country running for 90 days, which is what we've actually signed up to under a treaty. Uh, so we should be looking at that kind of level of security. So there are a whole bunch of things I think we'll be talking about after this. And I also think that every step forward that those in our regions make, so uh, Indonesia and in Bangladesh and India, if we can encourage those countries and, in fact, put some money into those countries to get them making things that we need, uh, then that will help Australia in the long run. I think one of the big issues Australia's had is we cut back on foreign aid. We actually need to do, if we're going to be spending a lot of money, we might as well spend a few billion more on our region. Indonesia is going to need an enormous amount of help after this. There are concerns in government that, that country might actually collapse if the disease gets its a uh, runs away there. So we're going to have to tend to our region and, and assist them to assist us in the long run. Mm. Damien, um, the, the issues are vastly different, of course, in the United States where the virus has, is, is, you know, way more pervasive than it is here. Um, two questions I have for you. Where did the smart policy lie in the United States? And in, and in the second instance, what are the big issues that are being missed in the public discussion in the United States at the moment, uh, you know, in relation to COVID and, and the kind of outburst of culture war that we're seeing there as well? Uh, I mean, one, one big thing that I think you're starting to see now, which I do think has been ignored a bit by the media there, is, is just how varied the vulnerability 
is, or at least how varied the, the, the sort of pervasiveness of the virus is, right? So part of the reason you have, you know, various places saying, hey, we need to open up is because, you know, you have a lot of communities that are hundreds of miles away from anyone with an infection. Um, and then you have places in New York where, you know, I can think of 25 people I know who have gotten the virus. Um, and so, so I do think it varies quite a bit between two places. And I don't know that there's been, you know, the assumption is that it will rip through everywhere with the same level uh, of danger. And I just don't know that that's the case. I don't know that that's been really fully explained or explored. Um, in terms of smart policy, I mean, one of the things that I think many of us are wondering and, and is what sort of follows this, you know, does this lead to some kind of shift in how Americans interact with government? And I was talking to a scientist who was saying, you know, does this mean the resurgence of respect for science and support for science? Uh, you know, there's some hopeful possibilities out there in terms of where the policy heads. And then there are some pretty dark corners as well. Um, I mean, this is a this is a disease, and like many crises, that only intensifies inequality, and that's a problem that's already been huge in the United States. Um, and we'll see what happens with the upcoming election. I mean, this has totally thrown the usual campaign schedule in complete disarray. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's really the United States is at another kind of turning point, and I think you know not just in the next few months, but the next year or two will be very telling in terms of where it ends up. And can I ask you both, finally, on this part of the discussion, in terms of uh, the perception that, you know, the hard right is kind of anti-science um, and that there seems to, it seems to be advocating a, a fairly radical uh, view in terms of where we go from here in relation to COVID-19, um, do you think that this pandemic could almost be an existential risk to the standing of the hard right if it's if it doesn't play out the way they say it will play out. I think one of the things that we will see after this, I mean, no one, none of us can predict the future. It's like all those forecast models. They don't tell you about the future. They tell you about possible pathways. And, and, and the people who will win on the other side or in the piece will be those who harness the, the emotions rather than the the sort of intellectual outcomes, I think, of the of the of the masses as to how they respond to this, and there'll be a number of emotions. Among them will be anger and fear. Now, uh, with the right kind of articulation of a very hard right uh, worldview, I can see how that could could prevail. I think that there is fertile ground now on the other side for almost any set of possibilities. What we genuinely deeply need is leadership out of this crisis, not just in this crisis, but out of this crisis. I actually think that the United States, and this is my, my deep sadness with what's happening in America at the moment, beyond the human sadness that I see, is that, you know, the world did look to America for leadership, and that leadership is now no longer there. So, uh, I, you know, I fear coming out of this, the kinds of voices that might be raised that could take the aftermath of this crisis in a very dark direction to use Damien's uh, the way that Damien described it, I actually do fear the dark corners. I fear the dark corners could become dominant if uh, loud and persuasive voices capture the emotion post this crisis. And Damien, but, you know, it, it, I don't know. It's an interesting point. I mean, you know, what does it look like if one of these groups protesting to open up suddenly has an outbreak of coronavirus? Does that just completely kill off, you know, this mm. whole idea? It might. Literally. Uh, yeah, literally. Um, and by the same token, I think there are... I think you're right that the United States has fallen from that leadership position in all kinds of ways. And you see it changing the geopolitics already with China acting more aggressively in Southeast Asia, 
with its Navy and a whole bunch of other ways. And China will likely emerge from this much stronger than the U.S. But I also think there are some shoots of hope. You know, someone like Gavin Newsom, who's the governor in California, has really risen to the occasion and now has a national profile in a way he never did before. Um, you know, there are a handful of governors in the United States who I think who this will change their political pathway. And, you know, the, the United States, I always tell people from Australia, you have to remember that it's a country of extremes from when it started in revolution through civil war, through civil rights, through Vietnam. And so, you know, you have to understand that everything there is just bigger and messier. And you can also imagine a scenario, I mean, again, because we can't predict the future, but what happens if an American company like Gilead comes out with a treatment or a vaccine and suddenly the United States has literally solved this problem for the world? Mm. So, you know, there are still possible scenarios where American leadership can be revived. Um, you know, it is a country that's gone from one extreme of Barack Obama to another extreme of Donald Trump. And who knows what the next swing of the pendulum will bring. So, you know, I think the jury is still out on that. It's it's still a very big, very dominant, dynamic country with a lot of potential. But I think this has really ripped the veneer off the way that the world, you know, used to see the United States. You know, what you see underneath that veneer is a really messy democracy. George Packer has a piece in The Atlantic today. He's an old friend of mine that basically calls the United States a failed state. Mm. Um, and I think for a lot of people, you know, like George and I, who have been, been around the world and worked in a lot of different countries, you know, it's heartbreaking to see the United States look as sick as it is, not just with the virus, but in terms of its democracy. Yeah, so with, how, did you, how did you feel when you read that piece? I thought it was the most extraordinary piece. It was incredibly powerful and quite convincing. It, 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 were you convinced by it? Uh, I was. I mean, I, I, I think George has been smart and ahead on American democracy repeatedly. He did a lot of pieces like this during the global financial crisis that I think were also pretty groundbreaking. And I think he's a little, it might be a little bit too dark in portions. Um, you know, like I said, I don't know that he entertained the possibility of, you know, what if an American company and private enterprise finds a solution to this? Um, you know, I think there are some some signs of hope that he might have overlooked. But in general, I think his diagnosis of American democracy is, is pretty right on. I mean, this I was saying this in, our, in, in conversations with my family this week on WhatsApp, that a lot of this precedes President Trump. You know, my wife and I were talking about whether it started at the end of the Cold War or whether it started with the Clinton administration. But, you know, the United States has been eating its own democracy and just poisoning, you know, its institutions and stripping them bare for decades. And what you're seeing now are the consequences of a political debate that has really just, you know, gone into a, a problematic place for a while. And, and none of us knows how that how it gets out of that. Well, Australia sounds like Nirvana by comparison. Uh, you're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. Our guests this week are Damien Cave of the New York Times and Chris Ullman of the Nine Network. So let's move on, guys. This week, Josh Frydenberg announced that the government was moving ahead in making Facebook and Google pay our media companies for carrying their news. And uh, that has been warmly greeted news uh, in the media, particularly by News Corp, with The Australian on Tuesday running an editorial titled Brave Attempt to Stop Tech Parasites Destroying News. So, Chris, can I come to you first on this one? Getting access to some of the lost revenue from these platforms, or parasites as the Australian might call them, has been a holy grail for the media for, for many, many years now. So is this good news announced by the government this week? 
Well, if it works, Monica, like we've seen other countries around the world attempt to do this. I know they made an attempt in Spain and that didn't work. So trying to get these gigantic companies to pay anything from uh, what they take from localised media like ours is a very difficult thing to do. So I'll be interested to see how the government lands that and what kind of money, what might we be talking about. But, you know, if I look at the media landscape in Australia, uh, it's under siege during this crisis and there, there are parts of it will not survive. So we've already seen the collapse of regional newspapers. Uh, Channel 7 is in deep trouble and that gives me no joy coming from Channel 9 because I'd like as many commercial voices as we possibly can have, but they have an enormous debt burden. They've already cut their staff wages by 20%. Uh, That's a crisis move by them. I know that my own organisation faces a loss in advertising of between $250 million and $500 million in the course of this financial year. Now, we can bear those losses for a while. But one of the other things that we've seen in the lead-up to all this is is a hollowing out of the advertising market revenue in Australia, which is going to those big international players who essentially aren't paying much by way of tax in Australia. Now, by any measure, that isn't fair, but how you balance the ledger is a difficult thing to do. So I absolutely welcome it. I hope that it works, and I would like to see Google, Apple, and Facebook and the rest of them paying their dues, not just in Australia, but around the world. Mm. Damien, what do you think? I mean, of course, any support for the media is is welcome, but from the ACCC's own report, Australians only spend, what, some 2.3% of their time online on news sites. Could the royalties from these platforms, if they actually happen, actually be underwhelming? That's That's actually the thing that I kind of was anticipating and worrying about, you know, it's a great idea in theory. Yes, as Chris says, the implementation will matter. And and so will the distribution. If you're one of these small regional newspapers that has low traffic from these sites anyways, how much are you going to get? Pennies? Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think it really depends on how you create a system that's equitable and how you also create something that doesn't just subsidize the companies that are already big and healthy and fine. I mean, it would be nice if in addition to going and saying, okay, we're going to get some money from these folks if there was a conversation about how to support a media ecosystem that is diverse and national um, and kind of breaks through some of the some of the sort of usual players. I think that would be welcome, but I don't think we're anywhere near that conversation yet. And, and is there a danger as well that it could backfire in the sense that, you know, Google does have form with just dropping news content when it's pushed to pay for carrying news. Spain's been through that already. Could we just see the news frozen out through changes to the algorithms? Absolutely. I mean, I think you could be it could be frozen out and they could also pay very little and then say, okay, look, we're done. So we're not going to do any of these other things that we've been doing and other things that we've been, plan- been planning. So if this becomes, you know, this tiny little solution that gives them the excuse to do nothing more and to maybe, you know, cut off access to what is for them really a very small piece of their business, mm-hmm. then, you know, that is a potential problem. That said, I do think it's an important precedent. You know, I mean, I think, you know, these things tend to start slow, but they can build. I mean, if you even look at something like digital subscriptions, you know, when the New York Times started doing that, it was a crazy idea and no one thought it would work. Um, and, you know, that's been able to help not just us, but a lot of other publications. And so, you know, you could imagine this precedent growing into something that is significant, you know, or it could be something that dies, like micropayments, which was a previous solution that never, you know, made it. Yeah. So, Chris, what, I mean, are we as a nation going about this 
kind of in the wrong way. Google in 2019 was pulling in some $4.2 billion from advertising in Australia. The tax it paid was not anything as impressive, less than uh, $27 million. Is this really actually a tax issue more than it is anything else? Yeah, I would have thought the tax side of the equation is a big one for all Australians. So not, we're not just looking at media organisations, and I do believe that you know they, they should pay for the content they put up on their sites, but uh, it's the tax that they need to pay to the Australian taxpayer, I think, is one of the big uh, questions that has to be unlocked. And again, you know, governments around the world have struggled to do this. So these are very big international companies. Eventually, someone's going to have to find a way to make them pay for the money that they take out of these communities, you know, it's one of the one of the basic tenets of our democracy is that you know the people who can pay do pay in it, and they're certainly getting advantage out of it. And it's not huge in international terms, but it'll be a big whack of money for us. And I can tell you, on the other side of this crisis, we're going to need all the tax revenue we can get. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, you know, what do you say to the view that the news is at heart a service, and when you treat it as a business, it might technically survive into the next century, but it won't prosper. Yeah, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. I think that you can be both a service and a business. And I think there are some benefits to having it be seen as a business, um, which requires you to, you know, serve a readership uh, and work with that readership. I think, you know, I'm much more comfortable with the New York Times relying on subscribers than I am with it relying on advertising. Um, and so I don't know. I think that there are some some parts of that side of the equation that I think are positive. But I think part of what you have to figure out a way to do is how to make sure that that service muscle doesn't atrophy and um, that people sort of understand that that's part of what you're doing. Now, I think a crisis like this actually helps. I think it shows, you know, people the value, especially of, of local news. I mean, I'm reading more and curious more to know about what's happening in my council than I ever was before. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. So I, I think that there's there's a this is potentially a real moment of opportunity for, for journalism to kind of seize the moment and suggest to tell everyone that we are service. Mm. Okay, well let's let's move on and in in one sense back to coronavirus because the government um, we're talking about the next the government's next phase in fighting the pandemic with new cases you know falling. It's understandable everyone wants to return to some form of normalcy, but one way of doing that would be to use a tracking app to help with working out who may have been exposed if you get the virus. Now, the app was initially flouted as um, as uh, compulsory, but now it's voluntary, which begs the question, does it serve its original purpose? So, Chris, is this app, do you think, a necessary step or are we finally in the realm of Big Brother? Oh, look, I think that any time the government wants to get more information on you, we should have a conversation about privacy. And unfortunately, on in other occasions where I've trusted the government would use some security legislation, well, it turned out badly. So, you know, I start from a starting point of being a sceptic about some of this. I absolutely understand why they're, why they're pushing forward. If we could get a broad-scale take-up in Australia of it, then it would do what we're already doing, which is contract tracing. So, Monica, if you got this disease now, you would even, no matter how badly you felt, uh, there would be people from New South Wales Health, if you're in New South Wales and Victorian Health, calling you up and saying, who did you meet in the last four or five days? Now, what the government's saying is they do that anyway. They're trying to circumvent some of the, the uh, those issues. And you're not being able to remember who you were with or perhaps standing close to someone for 15 minutes and you were unaware of it. So I absolutely understand how it would be a very useful tool. 
And I, I do also understand the argument that on the phone that I'm using at the moment, there are probably 10 or 15 apps that are going to be gathering more information on me than the government's ever likely to get. We do give up our personal information quite easily. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, well, I, I, I clicked I accept to get onto this phone call and uh, I've got no idea what I just accepted from Zoom. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's all of that as well. So, look, um, will I put on my own phone? I think I probably will because I think, you know, at this stage it's part of a national effort to try and do something about getting us out of the circumstance we find ourselves in. The government assures me that once this crisis is over that all of this will be deleted and that it's only stored on my phone unless uh, I get contacted by New South Wales Health, in which case they would access the information. Look, we have to take an enormous amount on trust. Uh, am I prepared to trust them at this stage? Well, look, uh, I'd just be delighted to get out, Monica, of the circumstance we're in now and restart our economy. So if this helps, then yes, I'll sign up. Yeah, yeah. Damien, what's your take on it? I mean, when you think about it, Twitter probably has uh, more data on us as individuals than this app will ever collect. Is there a disconnect here in the way we're viewing it? Uh, I do think there's a bit of a disconnect. I think we're sharing a lot of data already. And, um, you know, I think that it's important to be sceptical. As Chris said, I would love to see the debate go from should you download it or not to what are the terms of this agreement and how can we hold the government accountable for sticking to a level of privacy that we think is acceptable? <laughs> Once again, like where is the negotiation over the details instead of are you for it or against it? Um, I would love for the conversation to kind of get to that place. I think it's gotten there in some ways, but those are the questions that I think, you know, I think we should all be paying attention to exactly, you know, what will happen with our data when this is done, you know, how it's anonymized, how secure it is. I think, I think paying close attention to it, you know, will help us decide whether or not it's worth doing or not. I think most people, I do think there's a, a reason to err on the side of, of trust and to err on the side of trying to find a solution. But, you know, the scrutiny and accountability is important, too. So, you know, there's a lot of people who will be paying close attention to the security, and I, I'm grateful to them. I think that's a public service. So it kind of worked in Singapore. Do you think it would work in, in the United States, Damien? Uh, no, I don't think I don't. I think it's much harder to to have it work in the United States. I mean, it didn't even really work that well in Singapore. I mean, not enough people really took it up. Um, but, you know, I wonder if it would work in pockets. Would New Yorkers do it if they felt like it was something that, you know, th their governor or someone they trusted felt like they really needed? Uh, if it would allow for them to take pictures of themselves in their cool masks, maybe they would. Um, you know, I think that there are ways to get small pockets of America to join up um, with the understanding that there's going to be a whole lot of people who want nothing to do with it. Yeah. Okay, look, I think we'll leave it there. I thank you both very, very much for your time today. It was a great discussion. Damien Cave, Bureau Chief Australia for the New York Times, and Chris Orman, Political Editor for Nine, thank you both for being with us. Thank, thank you, Monica. And thanks for listening to this edition of The Fourth Estate. We are recorded largely out of the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and we thank them for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media and politics and a few things in between every week. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thank you very much to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Monica Attard and thank you for listening. 